Have you ever felt like you're out of your league? Or that maybe you're not qualified for the job that was ahead of you or the task that you saw? And have you ever thought, maybe other people thought that about you too? Uh, I've felt unqualified for stuff that I needed to do lots of times, um, you know, from growing up to my adult years. Uh, I remember the first, eh, I wouldn't say it was the real church that I was in because the first church that I was in would beg to differ with me. Uh, but I, I went to Candidate Church, I was 29 years old, and it was a church about the same size as Harbor Covenant, filled with people like Harbor, Harbor Covenant has, successful people, people who are accomplished in all kinds of aspects of life, and they brought me in to be the head of their multi-staff large church. And there was a, an air of unreality about this. I mean, even I was like, really, me? And I went through the candidating process and it went really well. I got more and more excited about the potential of being at this great church and what we'd be able to do together. And we were at the final luncheon before it was going to be over. And I was just sitting with a couple of people who were on the search committee. And Wayne Moore, who was a rather intimidating and yet incredibly kind man, he was just a big dude. And I remember him looking across the table at me and he said, can you do the job? And then he just paused and looked at me and he didn't flinch and he didn't move, he just asked. And in, you know, it seemed like half an hour to me as I was thinking about this, um, I think he really wanted me to be able to say yes. I, th I think he thought that I could do it but he just needed to hear me say it because there were oh so many reasons. At 29 years old, I shouldn't have been sitting in that chair. And so probably just a split second later, I said, Wayne, I can do the job. And he broke into a big smile and went, okay, then I'll vote for you. He just needed to hear me say, I think I can do this thing. Now, you probably have had feelings of inadequacy in your life too, or maybe you've been told that you're inadequate. God has a plan and a purpose. God has a plan and a purpose for the world, and I think God has a plan and a purpose for each of us. And at some point, or maybe multiple points along the way, I think God leans across the table and says, can you do it? Are you up for it? And I think very much like Wayne, he kind of leans in it and goes, I think you can, but I just need to hear you say it. And, and that very much is what our story is like today. We're going to look at another really familiar aspect of the Christmas story and unpack it in kind of an, unconditional, an unconventional way. So let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So I want to make a couple of points from the text. The first is that God has a plan. And this is really, really important because that means that all of the things that are going on, particularly the things that God is involved with, aren't accidental. God is at work and he's doing something. And this really is kind of unique in the history of religion because in a lot of other religions, the thing that the God is doing is just kind of making himself comfortable or enjoying making people miserable. But the God that Jesus reveals to us is a God who has a plan and a purpose. And his plan and his purpose is to make everything new, to recreate us, to renew us, to fix everything that's broken. That's what God is about. That's his plan and his purpose. So nothing's accidental. And it also means that everything matters. Because we know that things are broken, we know that there's an awful lot of evil that's out there, a lot of pain, and God is in the process of beating back uh, the enemies like death and sin and cancer and unwanted people. I mean, all, all of those things belong to the way that God doesn't want things to be. And so there's really nothing neutral, at least the way I see it, in the world. Everything we do is either motivated by bringing love and peace and hope to people and light and advancing the kingdom of God, or the things that we do that are selfish or even just downright evil kind of maintain the status quo of the brokenness and the pain of the world. None of our actions are neutral. Everything is contributing to one side or another. And God is busy accomplishing his plan. I mean, we know God wins, light wins, the good wins. And the whole purpose of Christmas is to move God's plan down the field. And I think that's important that that's what we know about Christmas because, you know, Christmas is great. It's warm, it's sentimental, it's fun. But if it's only about Frosty the Snowman or praying that the sun comes back, it's just empty. Because ultimately, Christmas is about God changing the world. And yeah, I, I, I like to say Merry Christmas. You know, that, that's important. But if I can choose between saying Merry Christmas and living like Christmas is a real reality, I'll go with the latter every time. Christmas only matters to people who don't know Jesus if you demonstrate how it's changed your life no matter what type of holiday you wish for them. So Christmas is this purposeful purposeful step forward to redeem and recreate humanity. It's this purposeful step in the plan that God has. Things are broken, things are messy, we know that. And Christmas is God saying, I'm stepping in and I'm fixing it. 
I also find that super reassuring. If you ever wonder what God thinks about you, if you ever wonder what God's intentions are for you, look at Christmas because God reaches out. God enters into your world with a posture of love, not a posture of judgment or condemnation. I love that. Secondly, God's plan and purpose. God's plan involves regular people. We tend, you know, to look at the superstars in almost every aspect of life, but certainly in our faith. Uh, we look at people who have an extraordinary gift or an extraordinary history or an extraordinary testimony. We look at people who have more than what we do, more personality, more energy, more resources. They're more fun than we are. They're more deep than we are. They're more care what, whatever. We tend to look at the extraordinary people. And we have a tendency sometimes, I think, or maybe often, to kind of downplay what we can bring to the table. We kind of think less of the contribution that we can make. And we think, oh, I'm not really qualified to do that. And sometimes we, we mean it in huge ways. And sometimes it's just like, hey, would you, would you close us in prayer? And you're like, oh, don't really like to pray. Not really qualified to do that. Can't lead a Bible study because I'm not as comfortable. Don't know as much of the Bible as I want. And you probably know as much as you need to. But it's really easy to feel like, well, I don't have that much to add. But... I beg to differ. I think you have a lot to add. And let me give you an example, a really, really simple example, but I see it happen every week. So many of you are encouragers and you don't even know it. When I cross paths with you, it makes me happy. When I see you walk into church on a Sunday morning, it makes me feel good. I love seeing you. Some of you, if I bump into you at the grocery store or Costco or, you know, it, it, out, out for coffee or something, I like seeing you. It encourages me. It makes my day better. And you probably didn't even know you had the gift of encouraging, but you do. And there's probably other people that feel that way about you. Sometimes you just show up with your happy, positive attitude. You say something nice, you smile, and that's a really big contribution but you don't feel like it because you're looking at the superstars sometimes. And in whatever life stage you find yourself, whether you think you're too young or you're too old or you're too middle-aged or you're too whatever, you probably bring more to the table than you think. You probably bring more for God to use than you think. There's this great verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, that says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. I mean, God uses all kinds of people. I mean, look at Mary. Here's this 13-year-old girl who comes from nothing, lives in a backwater country, probably nobody's first choice, except that she was God's first choice. God sees something in her, and he entrusts her to carry the Savior of the world. What does God see in you that maybe you don't see yourself? What could God be trying to entrust in you that you maybe don't think that you're qualified to do?
those things had to have gone through Mary's mind. Which means to my next point, fear is normal. Every time, every single time in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, every time an angel shows up, they always say, don't be afraid. Why? Well, because apparently angels are scary. And maybe because they represent God, and maybe because they've got to be there for a purpose, and that purpose might be scary. And so the first thing they always say is, don't be afraid. And that's what Gabriel says to Mary. Don't be afraid. And then he goes on to say, you found favor with God. God has chosen you. And I imagine for the rest of her life, Mary remembers that. God chose you. And I wonder what she thought about it. It, it kind of reminds me of something my favorite theologian, Tevye the Milkman from Fiddler on the Roof said. He, he looks up after he suffers something and he looks at God and he says, I know, I know, we're your chosen people. But every once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? And I imagine there had to be a couple of times in Mary's life where she was like, why me, God? Don't be afraid. It might not be easy, but God's chosen you, and God has called you. The fear that we feel sometimes, the fear that, that Mary might have had, might have to do with what God might want from us. But it also can be whether or not we think we can do it. It could be the inconvenience factor. That's why a lot of us foil God's plan. It's too much trouble. But also, that nagging doubt that we wonder, am I up for this? Am I qualified to do this? Really, God? There isn't anybody else. But here Mary is, and here Gabriel is, and he has a message that might be scary and a plan that might be intimidating. There's this really important thing, though, that happens in the passage that I think encouraged Mary and also encouraged us. Gabriel tells her what God is proposing. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Buried in there. The point about Jesus being born of God is not about plumbing. It's not, how is this thing actually going to work? The point is that what God is asking Mary to do, that what God is going to do literally in Mary is that this is God's initiative. This is about what God is doing. So the emphasis on God is on God. The emphasis is on Jesus. Mary is the vessel that God uses. And I think that takes a little bit of the pressure off. In fact, I, I love one of the titles in the Orthodox Church that is given to Mary, Theotokos, the God-bearer. What, what God is asking Mary to do is not to be God. He's not asking her to be the Savior of the world. He's asking her to carry the Savior in her and with her. It's not about Mary. It's about Jesus. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. God's responsibility. God's responsible. He's looking to us and asking for our participation with him, but we're not responsible for the outcome. I think the other thing that helps reassure Mary 
get her over her fears is that he gives her an example for her to hang on, which kind of leads also to my next point. The road that God has for us is not without bumps. Mary is like, um, how's this going to happen? I can think of a couple of reasons why this won't work. And so the angel Gabriel says, let me give you an example. It'll boost your faith. It'll help you believe that God can do this. It's going to require some faith on your part to be sure. But look at this example. So he goes, your cousin Elizabeth, she hasn't been able to have kids. And now you know she's pregnant. Look at what God did for her. Look at what God did in her. Look at how God used her. And if God can use Elizabeth, if he can move miraculously in Elizabeth, let that help your faith that God can work in you too. So for us, look around and see how God has worked in other people. How have you seen God be faithful to other people? How have you seen God work in other people's lives? How have you seen God be faithful to other people? Look at those stories, and that can encourage us in following Jesus where he's leading us. The flip side of that is that we all have to be encouragers too, that we have to be living our lives showing the faithfulness of God. We have to be that example of a person who can walk through a difficult time and still trust God because people watch us, people see us, people see our responses. And I've watched people walk through what I would call not much, who kind of just went off the deep end, not inspirational. And I've watched other people walk through deep, dark things and have a faith that sustains them. And they have no idea how many people have been encouraged. If God can sustain them in that, I know that God can sustain me in this. I can see God at work in my life. I can see God at work in your life. And how we live, how we're faithful to God in those things, how we demonstrate God's faithfulness, makes a difference for us and for other people. And that leads to my next point, which is just God is faithful. And we need to remember that. This is what, what Gabriel is saying when he says, no word from God will ever fail. If God said it, it'll happen. God never makes a promise that he doesn't fulfill. And that's what we have to hang on to. Because the things that God has for us, some of the situations that God requires us to walk through, they require faith on our part too. And I've learned from experience that when people go through anxious times, where people don't know what the future holds, where people are uncomfortable about something, the first thing they want is more information. I see it over and over and over again. When we introduce something new that could be different at the church, first thing people want is more information. And I recognize it's just because we're a little nervous about things. We want to know more. Mary doesn't have all the information, and she doesn't get all the information. But God asks her to follow even without all the information. It's going to require some faith on her part. Think about some of the things that happen later in the story. After Jesus is born, the, the shepherds are out in their field and they come and they, they worship Jesus and they talk about what the angel has revealed to them and then they go back off to their, their fields talking to other people, praising God. And it said, 
that Mary treasured those things in her heart and pondered them. And I imagine her listening to what the shepherds say and going, what do you suppose all this means? When she and Joseph present Jesus in the temple, Simeon, a man who meets her there, tells her that a sword will pierce her heart. And he never explains that. And I gotta imagine Mary holding Jesus wandering off going, what do you suppose that means? I don't know. And then when Jesus is almost 12, they take him back to the temple and he gets left there. And almost every parent I know has forgotten their kids someplace, so no, no judgment here. And they finally find him and Mary and Joseph say to Jesus, son, why did you do this to us? And then Jesus kind of explains what was going on and the scripture notes, but Joseph and Mary didn't understand. But it says, and here's that phrase again, Mary treasured these things in her heart. She had to have been saying, what do you suppose all of this means? And she never got a full answer. She just got called to trust God. And I think she found God to be faithful. All of this goes on in God's dealing with people. But at this very moment in the story that we're looking at, the plan of God is all focused down on one person. This 13-year-old girl, no resources, backwater country, and an angel of God is standing in front of her. And after he explains some things and answers at least a few of her questions, then the story pauses and the angel waits. And there are perhaps two things that are going on at that moment, and maybe they're both going on at the same time. I love Frederick Beekner's take on this. He says, she struck the angel Gabriel as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child, but he'd been entrusted with a message to give her, and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named and who he was to be and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. As he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath the great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation hung now on the answer of a girl. The other thing I think was happening is that Gabriel was pulling for her. I think he was like Wayne Moore in that moment going, you can do this. I believe you can do this. I believe that Gabriel was inside going, Mary, you can do this thing. But whatever was happening, in this very pregnant pause, she still had to make a choice. And Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. She says that miraculously, I think, at the age of 13. Because the overriding identity of Mary's life is that she's God's servant. So even when it gets to be hard, that's who she is. Her purpose is to do what God has for her in his plan of redeeming the world. And we always have to remember that. God doesn't want us for some weird purpose. God always wants us to participate in the redemption of the world. And I think that's why God asks Mary, because he knew her heart. And maybe that's why God asks us some things, because he knows 
our hearts. So what's your purpose? Mary was the Lord's servant. What's your purpose in your life? What, what's the most important thing in your life? And are you living into that? A couple of weeks ago, I said that most of us just need to quit making excuses and stop being spiritually lazy. And that just resonated with a ton of people. They're like, you're right. I need to quit complaining. I need to quit blaming it on other things. I just need to pick up the ball and do what I need to do to be a disciple. And that's the same here. I, I hope that the purpose of your life is for you to follow Jesus. And I hope that's what you're living out in small and in big ways. But how do you live that out? I mean, I think about the number of us that are raising kids, and that is a great purpose. That's what God has for you right now, is to raise your kids and to raise them well. But how does the kingdom of God fit into that? How does the kingdom of God fit into how you raise your kids? How does how you raise your kids move the kingdom of God forward? Um, I think about some friends of ours uh, who live in a very, very different socioeconomic bracket than we do. And they realized that their kids really hadn't been exposed to people who were living in great need or great poverty. And so their answer to this, this was pre-COVID, their answer to this was to take their kids on a first-class cruise that got off several days in the Bahamas so that they could experience how other people live. You might be able to do a little bit better than that. But at least they were trying. Uh, how does the kingdom of God fit into how you're raising your kids? Maybe you go, my, my purpose right now is to do a good job at my job. Well, that's a good thing too. But how does the kingdom of God fit into what you do at work? I mean, I know so many of you who your job is your mission field. And you are there in Jesus' name, loving on people and caring for people and sharing the hope that you have. That's a great purpose. Others of us, I think if we were honest, would say, my purpose in life is to have a good time constantly. And I'm all for having a good time. But if, all, if the whole purpose of your life is simply to have fun, my brother, my sister, you're searching for something and you're not finding it wherever you're looking for. I hope you'll rethink what your purpose in, in life is. But as you think about what God has for you, you don't really have to go overboard. You don't have to take it ad absurdum. No, God doesn't want you to be a monk. And the monks don't want you either because that's not what your calling is. And God probably isn't calling you to be a foreign missionary. And the foreign missionaries don't want you either because you'll just mess up their stuff. What he's calling you to be is to be missional where you are. Every day when you go into work, every day when you meet your coffee group, here I am, I'm the servant of the Lord. What do you have for me here today, God? Because my answer is yes. And you'll end up doing some crazy things that are strangely within your grasp, even if mildly inconvenient from time to time. In this passage about the Annunciation, the real drama in the story is at verse 38. That's where the pregnant pause is. What will Mary's answer be? And that's the real drama in our lives too, isn't it? What will our answer be? Will you follow God in this thing? Will you live counterculturally? Will you get over your fears? 
Will you do something of lasting significance even if it's inconvenient? And the drama is in, what will your answer be? So let me ask you three questions. The first is, what's the purpose of your life? The second, what has God entrusted to you? And the third, what is God waiting for your answer about? Thank you.